0: I could almost sense him, the man behind me. Well, first I saw him. He was passing me in the opposite direction, and there was a slight delay in his movements, like he was checking me out. Not in a flirtatious way, more like surveillance. I was walking up from the store to my apartment, not expecting anything out of the ordinary. But the notion of the phenomenon Men in Black, from now on called MIB, was on my mind at the moment. When I turned around, feeling his eyes burning on my neck, I saw him standing in the middle of the pavement, looking up at me. Better to ignore, I thought, and continued up to the left, over the street and among the tall pines facing the apartment house. For some reason, I looked behind me again, and there he stood on the path covered with pine needles. The mysterious man wore a jacket with a hoodie, covering his face with shadows. He stood there, frozen, watching me, which gave me chills, and I hurried inside and locked the door behind me. Later that day, I was joking with my partner about how an MIB was following me. This was mostly because it was something I was researching at the time, and I was told not to worry. A while later, I was home alone when I noticed how the cats were reacting to something in the hallway. They were focusing their attention on the door. To my horror, I could see the doorknob moving slowly as if someone was trying to get inside similar to the scene in John Carpenter's The Thing when a deep-frozen Kurt Russell comes back to the base and finds himself locked out. Through the twisted peephole perspective, I saw a man standing there as if he was waiting for me to open the door, and I did, contrary to common sense. "'Are you looking for someone?' I asked. He answered with one word. "'Loam.' I explained to him, both nervous and annoyed, that there was no loam in this apartment, and said goodbye. He hung around outside the door for a while and then left. This was the start of more than a month of strange visits. Once, he rang the doorbell in the middle of the night asking the same question. Another time, standing outside on the balcony, we found him looking up at us. At first, we could only see his white eyes, which were almost luminous in the dark evening. It became routine, and we would find him outside our door or on the floor above, repeatedly looking down at our apartment. They always ask the same question, Loam? Hello, my ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivian, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Rory, and I am joined by the luminous duo, Nick and Jay. I have a shirt on. I'm not glowing. <laughs> I'm sparkling. I'm just so pale. That's true. And on this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of an And we're back!
1: Yay!
0: Who the fuck let you out of the basement? You you did when you when well I guess we did but because we moved. Oh, you're in my house now. That explains why when I go to the
1: basement and start screaming at you, you no longer respond by sobbing.
0: Uh, um, that wasn't me before. Oh, who
1: the fuck is in my basement? <laughs> Don't worry
0: about it. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome <laughs> to what is already, I feel, gonna be a bit of a, a wild and crazy time. This is weird for me. I'm not used to record, used to recording
1: this soon after I've woken up. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've done it a few times. Yeah, right? I know. I just, I, I'm feeling real off today. Not gonna lie. I, I feel like I, this could be a dream. Still,
0: it's because you gathered too much magic last night.
1: Mm-hmm, that's true. I have, I have too much magical energy in me. I'm slipping out of reality, and we're not at all talking about a nerdy card game we're obsessed with.
0: No, we. That's, I was talking about the card game. I don't shut know what... your
1: dirty whore
2: mouth. I'm very used to jumping into a recording session about half an hour after I woke up. If
0: yeah, but that, yeah, sometimes but... I literally have woken you up, and then you walked to where we were recording and sat down.
2: Yeah because I would rather do that than go to bed at a reasonable
0: hour. You, no, you have recorded next to me in a bathrobe.
2: Yes, I have.
0: That's common. Yeah. I'm honestly surprised that Jay's not wearing it now.
1: I know. We, we Everyone applaud. Jay is wearing human clothes.
2: I'm wearing pajama pants.
1: I didn't see the pants. Uh, all right, half credit.
0: Half credit. You're, you're
1: dressed in human clothes from the waist up.
0: I'm sure that Jay would live stream in a bathrobe if, if they... Uh, if if both of us wouldn't just stare at them.
1: Maybe it, that's what we'll do for a live stream one day. We'll do a pajama party.
0: I like that idea, I, actually. I would be
2: okay with that. And I was going to say, if I ever do the thing I want to do where I stream video games as a way to interact with our audience more in real time, I'm probably going to be doing that in pajamas because I legitimately think wearing outside clothes makes me worse at video games.
0: Huh. Well, you're not as relaxed, so I get it. Yeah. Murphy is freaking out right now. He
2: is furious.
0: I can hear him through, the, through my headphones, through the closed door, just howling, probably uh, with your bathrobe. Probably. He's humping the bathrobe, most certainly. And you know what's funny? He it, loves
2: my bathrobe.
0: He doesn't, actually, he doesn't actually hump them anymore. He just walks around with them in his mouth between his legs, and he walks around wailing, and then he'll stop and when nobody gives him any attention, he just drops it and walks away. He doesn't actually do the humping anymore.
1: He, he's learned that the screaming was what got him the attention in the first place.
0: Yeah, well, he used to, for the longest time, he would only hump in private. He would actually drag the, the blanket out of the room to hump it, not into the center of the room. And then I think he realized that he was getting attention from that because I would chase him down to stop him from humping my blanket. So then it became a, I'm going to pull this out and howl. I'm going to hump the blanket.
2: Oh, and for a while, he had this really horrible habit of, you know, those those noises he only makes when he's like really sick, when he's like severely constipated and needs to go to the emergency vet or he's going to die. He started making those when he wasn't sick because he thought it was funny to make us fly out of our chairs and come running to whatever room in the house he was in. And then he would throw himself on his back and wiggle worm all across the floor like, I tricked you. I just want belly rubs.
0: Yeah. No, he actually does that one uh, quite often now. And uh, he is the cat that qui- cried, uh, cat the quiet. the cat that cried wolf now. Cat that cried wolf. Yeah. <laughs>
1: all
0: right, but we're not here to talk about my fucking psycho cat. Instead, so we're here terrible. to talk about what, Rory? How about? Northern Lights, High Strangeness in Sweden. I by like how Fred because Anderson. I wasn't doing it. Yeah. You
1: jumped in and, sp- and did both parts of the usual conversation.
0: Yeah, well, somebody's got to keep this show on the road.
1: And you know what? Today I'm not going to do it.
2: Someone's <laughs> got to take charge of this atomic circus and make it the best show in the galaxy.
0: <laughs> oh, that's a lot of pressure.
1: Don't worry, the clowns won't help. Jay and I are the clowns.
0: (laughs) Ain't that the fucking truth?
2: ACAP stands for assigned clown at
0: birth. (laughs) Uh, Oh, Lord. So, like I said, Northern Lights, High Strangers in Sweden by Fred Anderson, which is a collection of stories that our author uh, gathered throughout his research. And it is all and some of his own stories, like the one that I just read at uh, uh, the beginning here. And... It's honestly, it was, it's very, a lot of very interesting and deeply strange stories in here. What is happening in Sweden?
1: Yeah, I, here's the thing, is that I feel, I, 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 was, I was torn on that, because part of me wanted to say, what's happening in Sweden? It's so weird. And then the other part of me was wondering, is this kind of weirdness just happening everywhere, but these are the stories Americans don't talk about?
0: Oh, almost certainly.
1: Like the fuzzy boxes.
0: Yeah, I was going to say The Boxes is the, ob- is the one that stands out to me. is just deeply, deeply strange. Like, it makes no sense at all. I actually have a very strange theory about that, but we'll, I assume we'll go into it in the questions. Uh, I'll find a time. Yeah, I was going to say, you always know how to plug yourself.
1: Yeah, no, I do. It's uh, why I was so successful in my film career in college, but those were only released overseas. I'm big in the Asian markets where land whales are sexy. Oh my
0: god! Uh, I don't. I don't even know what to say to that, Jay.
1: <laughs> oh, I like how you defer to Jay. Jay, our pornography expert. Do you have anything to chime in?
2: Um.
0: How, how is the Asian market these days?
1: <laughs>
2: you know, I don't have a lot of fans in Asia, actually.
0: Oh God
1: i have
2: Uh, a lot of fans in south america i don't know why
1: i'm fine get off my turf
0: (laughs) (laughs) you're you're gonna you're gonna take over the asian market jay's already got south america and large swaths of america it's uh uh uh, north america or the u.s itself and me i'll just take the ocean
2: most iconic fan i've ever had uh and i never interacted with this person but like i i i I pray for them every day uh i had a fan that was repeatedly reading all of my works while living in the United Arab Emirates, where I'm pretty sure accessing the type of pornography I write could have legitimately landed them in prison for multiple years.
0: I don't even know how they would have got to the website. They must have been uh, using some kind of... Like, virt- yeah, VPM yeah. And, and, and virtual machine and something.
2: E- either that or it's, it's the United Arab Emirates. It's entirely possible that this was a person who was wealthy enough that they could access the broader Valid. internet and not worry too much about the consequences of being caught reading that shit. Yeah, yeah I'm about
0: to say, it turns out it's like a Saudi prince.
2: That wouldn't surprise me at all, the, the money that some people well, have given me for commissions.
0: And honestly, some of the stuff that, like, some... Like some, I you know, Saudi princes or the like, like royal, like royalty that are super uh, conservative in that way, have been caught with some weird porn.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now I need to. We have spun off again.
0: So do we? Uh, so the what? Well, what do we think of? The, what do we think of the book? You know, this is your fault.
1: It is not. It is
0: a hundred percent your fault. You I keep like sending be- me. And Jay off the, the fucking land so, whale comment.
1: So, what did you guys think of the book? Great
0: question, Rory.
1: Um, <laughs> um, I thought was, I thought it was fun. I mean, as I've said on the show before, I struggle a bit with books that are like this, where it's just a collection of a bunch of different, uh, seemingly unrelated stories. Uh, just because there's less to chew on. But I think Fred Anderson did a great job of adding in enough of a through line through his own commentary and his theories. That there were some interesting ideas in here. I like his, uh, I mean, he com- definitely comes from a very uh, idealist model. Oh, yeah. Where where these f- paranormal phenomenon are somehow a- existing at the intersection between reality and our perceptions of mm-hmm. it. Uh, kind of in that stage of being real but not real, somewhat psychic, somewhat physical, and malleable based off our beliefs and our understandings and our, our predispositions. And I thought that was interesting. He, he, he had a couple sections where he did some good synthesizing of sources we know. He talked about Kiel, Valet, uh, a number of others that we've read on the show.
0: Lot, lots of Alan Greenfield.
1: Alan Greenfield. That's right. That was the, Every yeah. time Alan Greenfield shows up, I, it, it's, there's a part of my brain that like an alarm goes off that's like, oh, my God, the SCP has breached containment. It's <laughs> out. <laughs> but that said, yeah, no, it was very interesting.
2: I just, yeah, I, I too, whenever I saw Alan Greenfield pop up on this book, it's like, ah, that man made fun of me for sitting on a kitchen chair. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what an what a interesting character Alan Greenfield is.
1: Yeah, he is the only, one and only person we've interviewed that, like, if it turned out, like Judge, Ju- like, Judge Doom and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, if he was actually secretly a cartoon character wearing a skin suit, I'd buy it.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah.
2: But unlike Judge Doom, he means us no harm.
1: No, and he 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 has the Jim Carrey rubber face is what yeah. it is. He's
0: so expressive. Oh yeah. I, I've n I have I do not I don't know if we've ever talked to anybody that was as uh just animated? Had, animated, that's the word, yeah, as as he as as uh Alan Greenfield was. Like I honestly wish that, that one was video uh video recorded just for that reason.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but yeah i I overall liked the book uh the I found the stories to be fascinating i think the I think his chapter on the men in black was probably my favorite one just because there's th- men in black is one of the aspects of the phenomenon where i do i think it is the most likely that it's like this is kind of our brains just making something up mm. out of disparate pieces um I don't I don't necessarily think all men in black stories are people just getting paranoid. But a lot of them, a lot of them feel like somebody's been on the Internet too long, you know, and they're just forgetting that sometimes you talk to a person outside and that person's weird for reasons you can't categorize.
0: Yeah, fair.
2: Uh, But and I also appreciated that occasionally there would just be this random line in one of the stories that would make me put the book down because it just leveled me with how funny it was. Like when he's talking about the universe being nonsense, and he's like, "If dolphins were such godlike creatures, why would they ever want to mate with a human diver?" And it's like, Fred, I, we were not talking about dolphins at any point in this book. But
0: he's got I... he's got a couple of zingers throughout the book that are really funny.
2: <laughs> Frogmen in black.
0: Yeah, yeah. The, he he is uh, he's definitely very sarcastic in a lot of. The the a lot of what he said or a lot of what he wrote, and I I appreciate that. Me too. But I too, like you guys, I enjoyed the book. I thought it was very, I thought it was very fun. And the stories, some of them were very uh, similar to what we've, uh, you know, what we've encountered throughout our reading of these kind of books. But uh, uh, enough of them were different that I was engaged throughout it. Yeah, And that that's that's good, especially when you have at this point, when you've read as many of these style of stories that we have, it's it's it can get hard to stay engaged in it. But I feel like he did a great job of uh, not just explaining this, st- like to read of telling the stories, but like Nick said, having a through through line throughout it, which is almost always all three of our complaint about these kind of books is that there was no real through line. Ah, uh, But I feel like he had at least the semblance of one. He always seemed to explain his thoughts throughout it, uh, which actually made it easy-ish for me to divide this into sections, which I appreciate as somebody who wrote a summary of it.
2: Yay!
0: But are we ready to get in? I am. All right.
1: All right, let's go.
0: Part one. As above, it's scary below. <laughs> Before we truly begin... I want to apologize in advance. I am American. And worse, I am so Midwestern. So, when I inevitably butcher the names of the people and places of this book, know that I looked up as many as I could and wrote it out phonetically the best that I could, but ultimately, I will likely not succeed.
1: Yeah, no, that's fair. I like how, how, I like how the fact that we're Midwestern is the most commonly given a warning on our show.
0: We talk through our noses. Yeah, we do. On the show, we spend a lot of time on events in and around America. This happens for multiple reasons, one of which is that we are American, the three of us. But it also seems that UFO literature and really a lot of the paranormal literature in general seems to be centered on America, the UK, and France. But this month, we're going to be taking a step away from the America and and the United Kingdom, and we're going to be heading to the beautiful country of Sweden. Northern Lights, High Strangeness in Sweden by Fred Anderson is our book this month, and it kicks off in a bus station in Austershund in the early 90s. Fred and his mother were watching an alien-looking man give a presentation on UFOs that Fred had convinced his mother to attend. At the time, they were evangelicals, so attending a lecture like this fell far outside the typical studies of them and their church. But maybe less so for Fred. He, like most of us here at Noctificent, has always been a bit of a nerd, obsessed with esoteric topics and spending far too much time at the library and dreaming of mysterious disappearances, UFOs, and ghosts. Anderson considers himself an open-minded skeptic. Quote, A debunker to me is someone who has a belief a belief they do everything to prove is right, and to be honest, that's not better than someone who uncritically believes in everything out of the ordinary. Why even believe in everything? There won't be any mysteries left to explore. His goal with this book is to simply shed light on the incredible stories that have come out of Sweden, most of which never reached beyond the country. And in a world so dominated by materialistic thinking, Fred sets out to tell the stories of these experiencers, regardless of physical truths. Gathering the files of a Swedish UFO group, UFO Sviria, which is Swedish for Sweden, by the way, he set off on a journey to tell these stories. And that is the kind of journey that we are happy to assist with. In August of 1967, in the community of Abbey, 15-year-olds Maria and Peter were out for a walk when they noticed an eerie red light above the nearby treetops. The light itself seemed to lack any kind of clear shape and, as one can imagine, made them uncomfortable, so they turned and headed back home. They were around an abandoned cabin when Maria turned around to look at the light. It was still there, swaying back and forth and eventually moving away to the east. In the windows of the cabin they saw yellow, ghostly lights floating around the rooms of the house, and outside the cabin they watched as a cone of light seemed to emerge from the ground and shine on the side of the cabin, and they heard large thumping noises coming from the inside. Then the red light appeared again, this time coming in from the west and flashing from red to white to black, and then landing in a field nearby. This was enough for these 15-year-olds as they fled feeling observed and fearful from all this colorful nonsense that was happening around them. They first fled to Peter's house, and, like the plot of any good horror movie, their parents did not answer the door. As they left to go to a house where his sisters lived, a flashing light appeared ten feet above them. Accompanied by a sharp whistling sound and the sound of fast, intense footsteps, something not human approached them. It was four feet tall, with a large head either covered in dark hair or hood, wearing dark overalls and had cords attached to its ankles. It had large, dark eyes and a small X-shaped mouth. The creature raised its arms, holding up a small box with a handle and a tube poking out the front. They responded to this in the most appropriate manner one could ask for. They ran for their fucking lives. They ran to Peter's sister's house, where they were finally let in. To Fred, this encounter is obviously very interesting. Even more interesting to him was the events that led up to it, that being the haunted cabin. A study in 2008 on the psychological aspects of alien encounters noted that people claim paranormal experiences happen in clusters, and often feature more than one type. He theorizes that these pre events somehow prime the mind to accept or create the impossible. Fred reached out to Alan Greenfield, who you might remember from our midnight chat with him on famed magician Alistair Crowley. Who suggested that paranormal phenomena are all a part of some broader pattern? Quote, My current thinking is that the human perception is more limited than the phenomena, which originates perhaps in something like the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. The idea here being that some people have a capacity to trigger paranormal events that will then show them glimpses of the other. Quote, it's like magic tricks in genre fiction. Both deal with illusions of the impossible, weird, strange, and unlikely, and being open-minded to one of them often transcends into the other. It's the pathway to Magonia, one could say. Peter, for example, liked sci-fi and UFOs. So for this encounter, he may have acted like the pathway since his mind was already primed and ready for the weird. Maria, unfortunately, just got dragged along for the ride. But the story doesn't end here. Paranormal activity continued for two nights, including unexplained clicking sounds outside, more lights in the sky, and ghostly footsteps. The day after the encounter, the family found two sets of footprints, one with three pointy toes that were about 10 inches in length, and one in two sections, heel and front, that was only about 2 inches in length. They also found that their apples had been taste-tested and must have been found wanting because they were covered in a strange mucus with small bite marks out of them. Filthy
1: bastards. Yeah. I'm just Taking like, my fucking apples.
2: Trying to eat the apples and they keep like kind of throwing up in their mouths. And then it's like, dude, why do you keep biting into that? Maybe the next one will be less disgusting. I don't know. The humans seem to like them. Buddy, buddy, we're allergic to citrus acid. Well, why didn't you tell me that five fucking minutes ago, Dane? <laughs> in
0: 2017, researchers tracked down adult Maria and Peter. Maria was the only one willing to talk and, without prompting, she drew the creature that she had reported. Her memory of it hadn't changed in all this time, yet she had no memories of the eerie lights that had preceded the encounter. Swedish folklore is full of stories of little elves, fairies, trolls, gnomes, and the like. They are tricksters who do as much good as harm, depending on how you treat them, of course. Maybe that's what this was. Maybe Maria and Peter met a creature of their nation's folklore. Maybe it was one of Strieber's visitors taking a Swedish vacation. We will likely never know. But I think, at the end of the day, that's okay, because they certainly aren't alone in dealing with weird humanoids in Sweden. In May of 1974, a team led by ufologist and cryptozoologist Janov Sundberg, a known hoaxer, decided to look at a cave where local legends said there was a 200-meter drop, 656 feet for us Americans, that led to an extensive tunnel system that housed trolls and other mythical creatures. He was joined by cave explorer Ingvar Borg, a photographer, Hakan Peterson, and others. They were there to investigate these legends. Trolls in Scandinavian folklore are diverse creatures. Some are big, dumb, and scary, but others are described as beautiful, smart, well-dressed, and with a refined air about them. Quote, in many ways, they can be counted as shapeshifters, dressing up for the occasion. This often wasn't good for the humans who encountered them. Trolls can also take the shape of different kinds of animals, like cats and owls. To keep it simple, a troll is a form of physical, -physical, non-physical, shapeshifting nature spirit in Scandinavia. The world has always been obsessed with what is below us, going back to our earliest cave drawings. Sweden is, of course, no exception. The mining industry in Sweden goes back over a thousand years, so the entire country is filled with old mines tunneling their way into the mysterious depths of the earth. And with mystery comes legend, and in Sweden it comes in the form of the Mine Lady, a seductive entity who is said to be a sign for disasters and accidents, and if you see her, You should run. But it also could just mean that the mine needs to be cleaned up, so I guess flee, but with a broom.
2: (laughs) Just fleeing with a big push broom in front of you, like, fuck, 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 fuck.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sundberg and team didn't encounter any trolls, unfortunately, or fortunately. It turns out the cave wasn't more than 15 to 20 meters deep, 50 to 65 feet Americans, and ended up with a collapsed roof.
1: I mean, don't trolls like historically in, in folklore often turn to
0: stone in the sunlight? Yeah. Um, according to J.R.R. R. Tolkien.
1: I didn't know if that came in from anywhere else. He
0: pulled a lot of inspiration from other folklore, but that's uh, where pick. it was that, from my understanding, is where it is uh, it was popularized. I, I was
1: just like, can you imagine if that cave was just like the open mouth of a sleeping troll? And he just woke up with this awful taste in his mouth. What the hell?
0: I mean, according to Harry Potter, they can also be absolutely humongous, so.
1: Yeah. It's it's
2: just, it wakes up, it realizes there's humans in its mouth, and it's like, don't, move. Just don't sneeze, don't sneeze, don't sneeze.
1: Last time I accidentally swallowed one of these little fuckers, I had the shits for a month. (laughs) Oh, oh, oh. They're so full of preservatives.
2: Turns out he was still alive in there, trying to climb out.
1: gross so gross i hate the idea of being swallowed by something huge i great i just hate the idea of being eaten alive
0: this was the second time in like a week that i've the the topic of somebody being eaten by something huge has come up because we were talking about whales
2: yeah because i was reading that i was reading that book whale fall
0: it's the universe talking to you it says you need to get a vor fetish no it's not going to happen.
1: Going to veto that. Damn it. That's okay. All,
0: you don't have to.
1: All my efforts to make, you guys spoil all my efforts to make you worse people.
0: That's not true at all. <laughs> we also- just, we're just picky about how we let ourselves be, uh, you know, worsened.
1: I like, how, I like how Jay immediately gave me shifty eyes when you said that. As if implying that there is some way I've made Jay worse that they haven't admitted to you yet.
2: I'm sure
0: that that exists. I
2: I was mostly trying to figure out how to defend the vor fetish community without being accused of being
1: a member. For the
0: record, I'm not kink-shaming anybody. Have your things so long as it's uh, safe and uh, consensual.
1: Yeah, no, that's the thing. Safe and consensual, but I do...
0: But we reserve the right to make jokes.
1: I I, I also I, I do feel okay, we're not gonna talk about vor fetish right now. No. no. That is not a time ta- I was about to get into erotic cannibalism See, and the people and who've done it intentionally, you. but yeah. you are doing you this. You are doing this. You are doing this. I feel like you're letting me do it. I mean I'm not stopping <laughs> you.
2: <laughs> okay, I think we do now need to set a minimum amount of time between Nick waking up and Nick being allowed at the recording studio. <laughs> I figured
0: that the forty minute drive was enough. Oh no.
2: He was asleep for that 40-minute drive, and you
1: know it. I don't become an adult till like, 2 in the afternoon. Explains the trajectory of my career.
0: It explains a lot and why you're so miserable. You're only an adult for, like, six hours out of the day.
1: Uh-huh. And I'm also an adult while I sleep, which is why I mostly dream of work.
0: That's unfortunate.
1: Uh, it's, a hor- it's torture.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm going to keep going now. Yeah. Yay! Fred learned of a different story from a friend, one from August of 1968 where a group of young boys, ages 11 to 13, were heading home from an old mining town called Smedgijabakken. They found an old root cellar near one of the many abandoned mines and, like any group of boys, spent the day building a hut where I'm sure no girls were allowed.
1: Mm-hmm. As is natural.
0: Mm-hmm. While at their new hangout spot, some of them saw two beings, 2.5 meters tall, 8 feet that looked like twins, both wearing white hooded overalls carrying white briefcase-like bags. They had human-like faces, but with longer eyes, of which one of the children noted that the eye color of one of them was blue. When the creatures moved, they did so in swift, light movements, which seemed, to these children, non-human. One of the boys, Benny, said that they didn't walk so much as floated. They moved as if caught in a different state of time, sometimes looping their movements over and over, moving swiftly, yet in slow motion. Which sounds so
1: much like how the kids describe the, the, the entities seen at the aerial school sighting.
0: I thought of uh, Trinity. Yeah, same thing. So yeah. Almost
1: same exact description. The, the weird yeah. sliding, moving from place to place.
0: Yeah, and it, it continuously makes me think of, like, either, like, a, you know how in, like, a video game, if you're a little laggy, you see your feet running, but you're moving slow. Yeah. Like, kind of like that. Or in, like, an RTS where it's, like, you, you click and they go, like, almost like as a crow flies. It's just turn and, and, and move. and
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I could definitely see it. It's a weird description, but it comes up so consistently.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And almost always around children. I, what if there's something
1: about when you're a child... That makes you more likely you're able to see these things, but they're somehow displaced temporally from you.
0: Maybe Uh, it's that you don't have enough, like there's not enough world experience to almost for your brain to filter it into seeing something like a normal movement. You're still open to the idea of something else. So you're seeing it all jumbled.
2: Uh, you know how the men in black, if they're a thing, are always asking people, "What's your time cycle?"
0: Or something very similar. Yeah,
2: is that what they're asking about? Are they literally asking how fast do you load into your physical environment? Yeah, ha- what's your frame rate? Yeah, about
0: to say, what's yeah. your yeah. frame
2: rate?
1: Yeah. Look, I am running. I am running this body on the next gen Nivea Quantum Core, and I really need. Uh, I really need you, PC asses, to catch up. <laughs>
2: And then it's just the sound of a shotgun being loaded and the MIB going, God damn it, again.
0: The creatures seemed surprised when they saw the boys, and the boys, in turn, found themselves paralyzed. The creatures just watched them until the paralysis wore off, and when it finally did, the boys took off running along a path towards the highway. The creatures chased after them, but only for a short time before turning back. Only three of the boys still remember the incident, but Benny in particular was impacted. The encounter created a lifelong passion for UFOs in Benny, and in the years since, he has seen many golden disks in the skies above. And with that, we're going to go into our first discussion question. Whoa! So we've discussed things like the hitchhiker effect and ghosts on UFOs and uh, the intersection of the paranormal a lot on this show, but it has been a while, so we're going to stop here for a second and talk about that. Specifically, I'm curious on your thoughts as to why it seemed that an encounter with one aspect of the paranormal seems to open the floodgates for some people and not others. Essentially, why is it that one encounter with one aspect of the phenomenon makes one person have more experiences or see more things, while others seem to get nothing more at all?
1: Um, I think it could definitely, weirdly, almost, I could see it like this. The initial paranormal experience, if we were to to take a step back and to look at it from a truly idealist point of view, uh, which I I argue this book suggests we try to do. Uh,
0: The vast majority of the time, I would say yes. Yeah. vast majority being probably 90 plus percent.
1: In which case, all these events are thought forms. Our bodies are thought forms. That my body is what the thought form that is Nick looks like from an external point of view. Um... That I could see almost, and if if that's the case, these uh, visions we have, these interactions, are in a way some form of communication with something that exists outside of our perceptual paradigm, right? I could see that first paranormal incident, seeing the UFO, encountering the ghost, spotting a Bigfoot, having one crawl into your bed and cuddle you through the night, all that stuff, being almost like the universe asking permission, being like, are you going to be okay with this? Can we continue this conversation? And for some people, the answer is, hell no, I woke up with a bunch of Bigfoot hair in my mouth. I don't want to do that again. (laughs) Um, And some other people are like, you know, it tastes a little gamey, but I like Bigfoot hair in my mouth. And And so those are the people where they continue to have those experiences because they've accepted them as part of their perceptual paradigm. So the conversation can continue. Where for other people, they close that door, and so nothing there nothing more can happen. It's not that the paranormal incidents, these whatever they are, aren't trying to contact these people, but they're just not picking up the phone anymore hmm. on some subconscious psychological level. Uh, almost like there are these pre-built filters in our perceptions in the human brain, and uh, well, it may not be done intentionally, at least not for most people maybe there are certain events which can allow us to flip those off and maybe leave them off. And uh, some people will, uh, will on, on some deep subconscious level, will choose to not do that, or maybe even turn on more filters, saying, this is not something I want to be part of my conscious reality.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. I like it. Especially with the filters thing, because it's like that actually, I mean, that lines up with science, right? We know that our brain has and does filter things constantly. Mm-hmm. So, how big of a stretch is it to assume that it's also acting as a filter for things like the paranormal until you know you've almost accepted it? Yeah, I mean it's like one of those, uh, like an, like those tests uh, that you see the, like not like an ink blot, but it's like do you see a bird or do you see a, a rabbit or whatever where your brain is trying to focus on one thing or the other, and then eventually you can shift your mind to see all of them.
1: Yep. Well, and it, uh. So it reminds me of a movie, which I, I do have to, again, reiterate for those who don't know, is fiction, even though it does not present itself as such. Uh, the fourth kind. Oh, a great UFO horror movie.
0: I didn't know that that was that was fiction at first.
1: Neither did I. No one did for a, a while. Yeah, but
0: I, uh, it fucked with me.
1: Yeah, no. Uh, But that but there's a line in that movie, which I think about often when it comes to topics like these. Uh, The main character's psychologist friend is present during a period when they're all abducted. Uh, and. Basically, he's telling her, like, I know what we went through, but don't ask me to accept it. Like Mm. saying, don't ask me to believe it. I can't do that. And so I kind of could see it almost like that. Like, that is the case of somebody where the main character was willing to keep diving into this to find out more to try to find her daughter. He, despite the stakes, simply couldn't accept it as part of his worldview.
0: and it's almost like the your your brain or the universal unconscious or whatever allows you that choice
1: yeah, yeah uh, like it's uh you know it, it kind of goes back to the i mean well i I, I don't like these arguments too often because I feel like people often use them to trivialize uh the hardships that people go through in life uh specifically on the the more metaphysical woo woo side of the community, kind of that whole argument of this is really ultimately a choose your own adventure novel. Yeah. Like that, that, that we are, uh, that there, 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 there's very little stakes. We get to decide what is actually in our life because this is a story we're playing
0: out. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've actually seen, in a way, we've seen examples of that. When you look at uh, uh, Alma Fielding. Her husband chose a completely different path than her even though all this shit was happening literally all around him. Was it
1: was Char- Charlie was Union Screaming House, right? Or was that
0: what I'm thinking of? I, yeah, did I do Charlie this again? was
1: Union Screaming House. Yeah, I did it that, again. The husband who basically said, they don't bother me, I don't bother them, and then he, yeah. he kindly took a, took a step off stage left and out of the story.
0: Yep. No, he was that's, just living that's what in the I, house. That's what, I, that's what I was thinking of. That's what I was thinking of.
1: Yeah, Alma
2: Fielding's husband was not given a choice. Yeah. Uh, but Alma Fielding's husband was putting up with uh, a lot of additional shit, the, uh, besides the poltergeist, like their house guest. Living and sleeping at the foot of their bed for some reason.
1: Though it did occur to me, I uh, forgot about that. It did occur to me. Like I, w- I did was thinking, not to jump back to Union Screaming House, not to jump back forty episodes. <laughs> uh, just that I, I did it did occur to me the other day as got. Oh God, what if that story really did happen? But Charlie was the hero, and Stephen LeChance just wrote him out of it so he could be the hero.
0: I would not be in any way surprised.
2: Uh Stephen LeChance, you. It's, you fill me with
1: contempt. The worst thing is, it's the name. Stephen LeChant sounds like the name of a guy who's going to sell bottles of miracle tonic that's really his piss. <laughs> <Like> <laughs> uh-uh. that, I could see him in the 1800s hawking his shit out of a rickety cart on a street corner.
0: Yeah. What, what did they call those guys? It's snake oil salesman. Snake oil salesman. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway, we're back on topic.
0: Jay, what do you what do you think of the the question at hand?
2: So I think Nick is on to something with the idea of uh whether or not this information continues to get filtered after that initial encounter because what I'm currently working with for the purposes of this argument right now is the idea of maybe maybe we're all on some level constantly perceiving paranormal things but it, it it's it's kind of like the the green car effect you never see green cars until you have one and then suddenly they're fucking everywhere um maybe for some people their 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 paradolia their ability to recognize patterns and sort them into something cohesive just you need that reference point of that first impactful paranormal event mm. to be able to start perceiving that the things that are happening to you have significance outside of an, you know, like an odd coincidence. I was, I was reading this thing on what wi- online a while ago where someone was complaining that uh, some casual modern media criticism doesn't take into account the fact that the characters don't know what genre they're in. Mm. So it's like, Of course, if you think you're in a rom-com, not a slasher movie, yeah, you're not going to go pick up a baseball bat and search every closet in the house just because a cup fell off the table. You're just going to be like, this floor must be slanted because a cup fell off the table.
0: That's, That's valid.
2: Yeah. And so it's not until, you know, you see something weird in the haunted house that you stop dismissing that weird little thing in the woods that looks like it might not be a person. Like, you know, a lot of people might live in haunted house, haunted houses, and be like, "Yeah, the house just makes weird noises, and the windows are old and fucked up, so sometimes you see weird shit on the walls at certain times of day."
0: So, in the thinking about this, like in the framework of the idea that you, like, in a way, you get to, like, you have that filter. There are people who. Have, have these experiences, have seen these things and don't want to. They yeah. don't want to see these things and yet they still do. Uh, how does that, how, how would that work if, you know, in theory we are allowed to pick and, you know, we're allowed to accept or deny this, uh, 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 re, you know, these events, this reality?
2: Uh, so- sometimes your brain is going to make decisions without consulting you. It's not necessarily about desire. It's about, you know, the the term arousal does not just refer to sexual drive. It refers to how aware are you of your environment? How engaged are you with the stimulus around you? Like when the dog trainer says Buffy's very aroused right now, she's not making a joke about Buffy wanting to make babies. Yeah, She's talking about the fact that Buffy has a lot of energy and that energy could be positive. It could be anxious. It could be aggressive if people begin if, if people's filters get adjusted from that one first significant encounter and they begin seeing things differently that that might not be because they're getting a dopamine hit out of realizing like hey that was an abnormal experience it could be like that that first that first experience was so upsetting for me possibly so traumatic for me that my brain is now stuck on a permanent mode of anxiety where I can't not see these things, like, like the equivalent of hypervigilance. I can't not react to somebody raising their voice.
1: Right. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, kind of building on that, I could also see the argument being made. Uh, well, two things. One, it could be quite easily that that first experience quite literally broke something. That, that filter is not just turned off. It broke. The, the fuse got blown out. Uh, yep. Another possibility, which again I know this is an um, unpopular idea, but it popped to mind. You know, I we've seen that argument that to a degree, uh, you know, if this you hear this a lot in reincarnation circles, right, that you choose your experience in this life. It could be, yeah, you you chose to experience these things. But you did it. You know what I mean? The the higher you, the fractal you chose you for this for this life. It doesn't give a shit what you, the piece, wants. Yeah, you wants.
0: you the part that was at one point a, you know, in the collective unconscious. Yeah this
1: this is an experience that was deemed necessary for your evolution in this life.
0: Yeah, and you'll either fail or you'll pass
1: yeah like and, and if that was reality, you know that I would put my car accident in the same boat. I would rather that had not happened right, but I can see in retrospect, I learned an awful lot about myself through that, so you know I, I guess kind of goes back to bad experiences aren't necessarily bad, you just need time to flip
0: it right you know and therapy
1: and time to- therapy and and drugs yeah
2: i'm uh, I'm not going to go into all of my moral objections to that framework because it's going to take 90 minutes. And they're
1: completely fair. I want to say, I'm not advocating this worldview. It's an interesting idea that slots with our discussion. Uh,
2: Yes. And I I think modified versions of that worldview with caveats stuck on them, like caveats about, you know,
1: other people
2: have free will and often bad things that are done to you are probably not things you elected to have happen to you because, you know... Other people are shitty and have free will, but um, I I could see, particularly with paranormal experiences, I can absolutely see that being a thing of like, yeah. uh, especially again, if if you operate off of my personally preferred framework that our ultimate goal is to exit the reincarnation cycle, uh, I could see this being like well, this is, this is my pathway up, so this needs to happen every life regardless of if that individual life feels prepared for it or not or regardless of that individual life, if that individual incarnation of me actually wants that. Because again, this is, this is the path up. I need to understand that this place is an illusion and that my real life is somewhere beyond this.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah well i uh I don't actually have anything extra to tack on this because uh everything that you guys have said here is just better framed ways of things that I was thinking about uh essentially with this question because like uh I was thinking about like the idea of like like in a similar way that there are some people that have seen paranormal things and choose not to engage with it and seem to be completely fine and never experience it ever again, like they turned the switch off, you know, and it's almost like, you know, uh, you can have, you know, there's many different paths once the events happen for you and you can always hop paths. You can go from one to the other, but either way, once it happens that, you know, the ontological shock or whatever happens and you, and the path begins. You know and it can happen as soon as birth or when you're a hundred years old
2: That makes sense you know i it, I wouldn't be surprised if some infants experience birth as such intense ontological shock that they just remain in that state for most of the rest of their life
0: i mean that was actually something that I was thinking of uh the like the idea that it like you know it the events triggered at that trauma because ultimately it is a trauma of like with when when we were talking to ollie because i've never met anyone else in my entire life that has memories confirmed memories from other people from pre the age of four yeah Um, which is
2: fascinating but it and uh, he said that that's kind of like a family trait that most of his siblings can remember that far back to.
0: Yeah, which is just very interesting to me, especially when you take into consideration everything else that's happened along the lines uh, with him and the, the paranormal. But before we spin off into conversations unrelated to this, uh, anything else you want to add on here? We ready for part two?
2: I think I'm ready for part two.
0: Emotionally, I'm ready. Physically, not. Well, you better get ready. Tighten that belt, because we're going in.
1: Oh, I cut off the circulation of my legs. (laughs) My
2: shots from yesterday hurt.
0: Yeah, that'll happen.
2: Especially this arm.
0: Where the shots were?
2: I got one in each.
0: So while we're
1: complaining about physical maladies, let's sidetrack on that for an hour and a half.
2: No. No. I get to complain to Rory about my physical maladies because I'm married to them, and they have to listen.
0: Part 2. Boxes, MIB, and Frogmen. Oh my! Boxes! <laughs> Let us head now to the Ernst Commune, a place far outside the city but near the small village of Treehorninghor, or the Triangle Lake. Tree, Treehorninghor. Horning. For. horning whore i listened to it like 12 fucking times and that's the closest i could come and i here's the thing i don't blame you i don't think
1: i could do better but i'm a child so i giggled
0: yeah well it's a small town with a population at the time of writing this of only 150. in 1969 cal nosland had an encounter with the strange He was the part-time manager of the transmitter station and on March 11th was just settling down to read the paper after his routine checks when suddenly the alarm started to go off indicating severe interference to all television and radio signals being sent and received by the station. Oddly though, everything seemed to be working fine and before he could figure it all out, it was over and the alarm shut off. A half an hour later, he felt the sudden impulse to go outside, as if called. When he did, he saw an enormous craft, its edges seemed fuzzy and undefined, hovering outside. It was 150 meters wide, 492 feet, and 5 to 6 meters tall, 16 to 20 feet. Then he noticed an opening filled with a gray-blue light where he saw the occupants. They were boxes floating boxes that, like the craft, lacked clearly defined edges. He counted 10 occupants that were 130 to 135 centimeters tall, four feet, and 30 to 40 centimeters wide, about a foot. Fearing that they were some sort of Russian ploy or weapon, he wanted to call the police, but he was stopped by a strong compulsion and instead let them inside. No red flags there. Nah. Like a good host, he held the door as seven or eight of these box-like entities floated inside the station. I, I loved that
1: image. I love the idea of holding the door open yeah. for them. I don't know why, but I-, I was giggling. I
0: did, too.
2: I'm imagining them bobbing through the air instead of That's just how I was chair. doing it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's how I was seeing it, too. <laughs> Once inside, they seemed to inspect his equipment and then left, flying the craft to the north and out of sight, likely to their next appointment. Whether or not he passed this inspection from the Box Mafia, we don't know. But Cal did note that when they were in the station, he got the sense that their shape was a projection, or a shell, and was hiding something inside. As well as the continued feeling to remain calm, and that they were not dangerous.
2: This this story really in particular, really reminded me of, like, many episodes ago when I was talking about the idea of, like, maybe aliens come to visit Earth because it's, like, a preserve and they think we're cute.
0: Hmm. Like...
2: That just felt very much of like the people of like, like alien Taurus being like, oh my God, he has a little radio station. Yeah, Look at this. His toys are so colorful. Does he know what all the little buttons do? Oh my God, he does.
0: Yeah, I saw it as like they were coming, checking out his equipment for whatever reason and then leaving because they didn't seem to engage with him at all. They were just like, look at this transmitter station.
2: I think they're not supposed to pet us.
0: Well, naturally, he was baffled. He gave a statement to the police and tried calling colleagues, but they laughed at him, assuming that he was drunk. Even his own wife didn't take the encounter seriously. It's not like Cal was known for telling tall tales. In fact, he was considered a practical and trustworthy man. And regardless of what others seemed to think, he still told his story, continuing to put his reputation at risk. And believe it or not, this is not the only story around this area. In 1977, Curtin Nilsen, a shortwave radio amateur, was out, drive, was out driving and testing new equipment with his vehicle. While by the Triangle Lake, he noticed that the broadcast quality dropped, so he went towards the station. Before he arrived, though, he stopped his car because he was getting a weird interference with his friend that he was in radio contact with and it was here that he noticed a strange blue-gray light. He then saw a strange machine with a dome top and three figures standing on top of it. The figures were about 60 centimeters tall, two feet, wore gray overalls, tight gloves, and astronaut helmets. He turned his car lights on to see better, and then the creatures vanished, but reappeared again when he turned the lights back off. One of the little spacemen held a spade-like object up, and suddenly Kurt's car died. when he finally got it to start again, he turned the car lights on, and like before, the creatures vanished. So he slammed on the gas and got the fuck out of there. As you do. As you do. While the author is skeptical of this story, admitting that it could all be misperceptions and misunderstandings, it is that it was so close to the box creature sighting location that he found interesting. And more so, Fred notes that there are additional sightings of box-like creatures. In January of 1959, Gottfried Olsen looked out the window and saw a red and white glowing entity on the other side of the road. It was human-sized and had legs, but it had a box-like appearance, and its head was blurry and undefined. In August of 1981, an anonymous witness shared a story with a taxi driver named Arne Lundberg. While on the way home, she felt like she suddenly hit an invisible wall and couldn't move. Then she saw a luminous white human shape with a well defined head and shoulders connected to a rectangular body that, when she tried to talk to it, was unresponsive, and when it vanished, she could move again. And Fred wonders if all of these are dreams getting mixed with reality out there in the forgotten corners of the world. That maybe they were dreams, or reality, or some strange position somewhere in the middle. Fred himself has had encounters with the strange. He shares with us one story where he noticed he was being trailed by a man wearing a hooded jacket and covering his face with shadows. Freaked out, he went inside. Then, joking with his partner, he said he was followed by a man in black. Later on, he noticed his cats were reacting to something in the hallway. And that's when he noticed that his doorknob was moving as if somebody was trying to get inside. Even though every ounce of his being said not to do this, he went and opened the door. A man was outside and, when prompted, said that he was there for Loam. 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 Fred said that there was nobody here by that name and then promptly shut the door. The man hung around for another minute before finally leaving. Over the next month, this continued. The man would visit and ask for Loam, and they would see him standing beneath their balcony. Long after the visit stopped, Fred decided to look up loam in Alan Greenfield's secret cipher of the Euphonots. Loam was connected to words like soul, crawl, and shadows. It's also a kind of soil that could be spelt as lamb, L-A-M, which is the same name as the gray-like entity that was claimed to have been channeled by Alistair Crowley. Crowley, Crowley, Crowley. Quote, So, what the heck is all of this? Beats me. But one thing the MIB phenomenon leads to is paranoia. It seems to be the perfect pathway to the dreaded rabbit hole of conspiracies and high strangeness, something countless, maybe all, witnesses have experienced ever since Gray Barker wrote about Albert K. Bender's encounters. In Jan of Sundberg's second book, This is that hoaxer dude from before, The Phantom Submarines, he claimed that Scandinavian submarines had encountered many USOs in nearby waters, but it also contained a few interesting MIB encounters, one of which is by Torbjorn Danielson, and that is a dope name. In 1982, Torbjorn was working at a sawmill when an EMS pulled up and gestured for him to come over. They were both in tailored suits, had dark skin and angular faces. They spoke Swedish, but they had no dialect. They asked Danielson several odd questions, including what's your time cycle before driving off. Later, he saw the men again down by the water with a third man, all of them dressed in diver's suits. On October 18, 1989, another witness was out fishing when he observed an object beneath the water surrounded by eight to ten frogmen, scuba divers. All the frogmen were oddly short, dressed in black diver's suits with transparent face shields. Yet, he couldn't see any other diving equipment. Two years later, a man was out walking his dog when four frogmen emerged from the nearby water. They stared at him, and he got the uncanny sense that they were not human. He felt hypnotized and paralyzed as they stared at him. Then they walked past, and the paralysis faded.
2: The idea of aliens dressing up in scuba gear to try and hide among humans is so goddamn funny.
1: What if it's not to hide? Remember that story from, uh, I think it was in Passport to Magonia, uh, from like the 1700s where it was one of the skyships and they saw a guy like in a diving bell climbing down. Mm-hmm. What if that is the visual representation of, that? that's like the closest the human brain can interpret to what is extra-dimensional protective gear to survive our environment.
0: I mean, it would make sense why there was, there's been an evolution of it into things like uh, space helmets and things like that.
1: Yeah. yeah. It, it is us. It is the closest we can understand to their clothing choices.
0: Yeah. Now, Fred takes these stories with the smallest grain of salt since Sunberg is their source. But it doesn't take away from the mystery of the men in black. Quote, no matter what, the MIB phenomenon is fascinating, both as personal experiences and as in mythology within ufology. These nicely dressed characters feel like they're coming from folklore, connected to fairy tales and legends. Their smooth appearances and odd behavior isn't far from the old trolls and fairies of Swedish folklore, symbols of both danger and adventure. Maybe they're sprung from biblical mythology and the three wise men kinds most likely meant to be magicians, Casper, Mechor, and Balthazar. Like so many modern MIBs, they show up during and after Strange Lights in the Sky and end up doing some unauthorized stalking. Maybe that story is the start of the mythology we've learned to love and fear so much. Or is there something more to it than biblical memes? I
1: love the idea that there's such a thing as authorized stalking. right? That's what a police stakeout is.
0: That's what I was just about to say.
1: <laughs> oh, well, now I'm sad.
0: And Fred has his theories, one of which is that if this is an artificial reality, a simulation, you might say, then what if the MIB are flaws in the system? Or what if there are viruses intruding into the simulation trying to hide within the simulation itself, but cannot mimic us perfectly, hence the uncanny valley nature of these encounters? He also posits that they could be tools of surveillance and communication to the UFOs. Since sightings of UFO occupants are so rare, the MIB are drone-like entities sent here to attempt to communicate with us because their true form of the UFO occupants would terrify us. Oh yeah, they're flying cubes. (laughs) And then, what if they are collective creations? Something that is sprouted from the collective unconscious. Fred believes humanity often creates its own ends, manifesting our fears and doubts into the external world, and hence making them real. So, what if the MIB are unintentional aggregors or topas? Ultimately, they're going to remain a mystery. They're ridiculous. They don't make sense. What if that's the whole point? And with that, we're going to move into our second discussion question. Yay! So let's talk about Fred's three theories here on The Men in Black, because I was personally fascinated by them. So do you agree, simply put, like simple question here, do you agree with any of the three theories that he proposes? And if not, what do you think the MIB are?
2: Yes, I think that if, if they are real uh if they are if they are an objective reality and not just a bunch of people encountering people with severe mental illnesses or brain damage that are acting very strange for some reason uh what they remind me of is uh one of the ways that uh cetacean style species like dolphins and orcas and whales are studied by scientists is they build little robots and they send them to try and infiltrate the pod, but the robots that we build cannot properly imitate the noises that these creatures make. So what comes out of their quote-unquote mouths often sounds like nonsense. Mm -hmm. And frequently pods actually begin deliberately avoiding these robots because they make them deeply uncomfortable. That's funny. (laughs) And that's exactly what, what the Men in Black make me think of, of it's just these aliens frantically building humanoid robots and being like, go, collect information. And then the robot comes back and is like, they bullied me out of town because they said I'm weird.
1: <laughs> like,
2: it's, I mean, like, we we can barely properly imitate the behavior of bonobos, which are the closest living relatives we have on this planet. It's either them or chimpanzees. I keep, Yeah, I thought it was the bonobos are actually closer to us than chimpanzees. And we can't fully understand their behavior, let alone imitate it enough to Get bonobos to accept us as part of the troop most of the time. And we have the advantage of evolving on the same planet as them and having relatively routine access to direct observation and interaction with them. Uh, I imagine for anything that does not that is not native to this planet slash level of reality, it would be even harder to build something that could pass itself off as us. But I also imagine that, like, um, again, operating off of my framework that I find not only you know, solvent but personally amusing of the idea that we're some sort of nature preserve and we're this we're this complex and intelligent species that they're desperately trying to understand. And I'm just thinking about like the evolution of animal rights and extrapolating out of that of like. Is 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 whatever intergalactic council in charge of this going like, okay, no, 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 the abductions are so traumatic for them, it's not productive. it It's not productive, and also, we recently figured out these things are people. Oh, God, they're people? Yeah, they're sapient. We can't be doing that. um We can't be doing that to them, so we've got to figure out a different way to observe them and gather data. And someone's like, I have an idea, and they just start sending these artificial constructed humans to try and infiltrate our communities and Mm. every time they do it's like well that somehow went worse than the last test um yeah no they're getting more aggressive this time it was just stoning immediately (laughs) he walked out said hey guys and they all screamed and started throwing chunks of sidewalk at him it was just okay um but yeah i I think there I think there is legitimately something there of them being sent to try and find a place within our communities to just sort of passively observe us in a way where we don't know we're being observed, but again, very tricky to imitate the mannerisms, behaviors, and speech of a complex and intelligent species. So it's possible that they just don't, they just can't build good ones yet.
1: Mm. It just, it just makes me wonder. Like, I just, if that was the case, I'd want to sit down and be like, guys, you've been going about this all wrong. Just imitate house cats. No one understands them anyway, and they can show up at most homes in the country and immediately get a place in the family.
0: It's true.
2: That is fair. That is fair. Humans and and cats have a very complicated but loyal relationship.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, surveillance, I, I could see as a possibility. Honestly, I, I see Men in Black as, as somewhat of a, a soup scenario. There's a lot of different things that contribute to an overall mythos, because I could see some of it being, very easily being, well, there's been UFO sightings in this area. Okay, well, we, uh, if I was a nefarious government agency that wanted to discredit this, well, why don't we send some people acting weird, asking really weird questions, and make this whole situation weirder than the press are willing to entertain? And I could see that being a p- part of it. I could see, and almost like kind of a chicken-egg scenario, I could also see it being, well, we know these men in black things show up sometimes after UFO encounters and no one believes it, so why don't we make s- some of our own men in black encounters? Meanwhile, it could also be that, hey, uh, this is, you know, as the Theory 3 was posited, that we have UFOs. For a long time, those have been associated culturally with the ideas of government cover-ups, you know, Deep Throat, The X-Files, all that stuff, That when you start cracking open that pandora's box of our our collective imaginal realm uh that is it kind of like you know a story x follows y right um so that you you have ufo's people start wondering well is there going to be our government types going to show up or am i going to get questioned by weird men in, from anonymous government agencies and lo and behold that happens mm-hmm. so almost like the expectation because those two topics are so tangled culturally creates the manifestation and external reality.
0: Yeah. So I uh, I agree. That's tend to like that's kind of where I'm sitting with with the men in black is I think that they're more of like the collective creation almost but like an unintentional like like unintentionally they become a creation in nine times out of ten in relation to uh, the men in black are in relation to UFOs, since that's where the folklore, so, so to speak, started. And I think the and I think that the biggest reason why they exist and continue to sprout up is because of the cultural impact that the men in black and events and things like this happened. So, uh, like you were saying, the expectation that something like this is happening, or even if one person or two people start thinking that something like this might happen then the the creatures themselves come to be or because they are and have been created by the collective unconscious already they start coming this way they start heading over to this sighting because it's almost like they're drawn to the attention unintentionally or not because that's where they need to be at that moment you know
2: i mean that that would that would track because if they were collective creations of the collective unconscious they would be they would you know they would that would kind of instill them with a purpose or mm-hmm. just like a specific pattern of behavior like I'm thinking of in werewolf the forsaken, that thing that Sadie would say last chronicle a what a spirit is is what a spirit wants is what a spirit does, mm-hmm. and I see the, the this idea of creatures of the collective unconscious in within werewolf the forsaken mythos that's essentially what a spirit is,
1: mm-hmm. animistic spirits, yeah,
2: yeah, so. That would absolutely make sense if it's like, well, I was created because people believe that uh, men in suits who act strange and don't know how to eat soup with a spoon show up at uh, UFO crash sites and scare the shit out of everybody, so... I'm gonna go into stasis in this tool shed until there's another UFO crash, and then I'm just gonna show up there and scare the shit out of everybody.
0: I wonder if like some of the weirdness about them, like that doesn't know how to like use a spoon properly and things like that, wasn't is almost a an accident, uh, something that's unintentional on that on the side of the egregore, Uh not because or not the thought form. Uh, Not because they are, just not just because they're not actually fully human or whatever, but rather because not enough people see them as real. So yeah. therefore, they aren't fully here yet.
2: Yeah, and it also kind of makes me think of like, you know, those video game mods that aren't white good enough and it yeah. will like make npcs do stuff they're not supposed to do but it kind of breaks the game a little bit because yeah. it's not supposed to be doing that yeah that that's kind of what it feels like to me if it's like well my protocols or whatever say I need to to fit in I have the urge to fit in because on some level I believe I'm human but I was not created with the ability to understand utensils.
0: Yeah,
1: so it's like they're running, uh, they're running so- software that's incompatible with the world's hardware.
0: Yeah, like they're still running on DOS.
1: Yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, and, and, and so there is actually a, a, a darker theory regarding Men in Black that I've heard that I, I do want to bring up because I think it's interesting. I don't necessarily know how much I, how much stock I put into it. Okay, so we were talking about this idea earlier where you have a paranormal experience, it opens your filter. What if there are entities out there that and you can go back to, say, the Gnostics with the Archon and the Archons and the Demiurge as a kind of a, a textual backing or folkloric religious backing for this idea. But what if there are entities in the world that explicitly don't want people to have those experiences, that they want those filters in place for whatever reason and what the men in black serve to do is to. Basically, almost act as like a contagion containment. Like, you've had this experience. We can't take that back. But we can sure as shit scare you to make sure that you you don't spread this as much as possible. And by acting weird, we also make your story that much more unbelievable. Yeah. So almost acting as uh, our reality referees. I mean, like, you have experience that's straight outside the parameters of this experiment or this reality or whatever. We just need to ensure that that doesn't become a system crashing
0: bug. I almost see that as uh, related to the second theory, the communication and yeah. all that. It's just a different goal. Instead of wanting to communicate in a way that is, you know, positive or whatever, they're trying to. They're communicating by stopping you and putting fear in you, and, and I mean, and whatnot.
1: A lot of people who've had a men in black in report
0: an almost anomalous fear,
1: like a terror that seizes them upon encountering
0: these people. And I and I think a large part of that comes from the seemingly uncanny valley nature of their appearance and actions. So if those are unintentional, then the, the, they make sense that we're fearful and then even more confused because the natural reaction to something that is like, like that uncanny valley is fear, hence the fear of clowns.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I I heard I was I was listening to la- the last podcast um series where they revisited Mothman mm-hmm. and were like talking about Mothman redux. Prophecies. Yep, redux and I, th- they didn't let him get too much into it like Marcus and I can't remember if it was still Ben or if it was Ed at that point kind of shut him down because you know they didn't want him spending an hour on this rant but Zabrowski was going on about this mater- wholly materialist interpretation of the men in black where it's like these are former Russian and Nazi scientists that were brought over via Project Paperclip and were subjected to MK Ultra protocols in an attempt to brainwash them that went poorly and fucked up their ability to properly navigate any situation outside of what they were specifically trained to do and that they were sent. Uh, this this is also uh, aligns with theory three of Fred's of it's like they are sent as part of information gathering at UFO crashes and then for disinformation campaigns afterwards. But again, under this theory, the MKUltra protocols they were subjected to instead of turning them into perfect agents, just kind of melted half their brain and made it so it's like they're sort of trying to do the job you sent them to do, but you've kept them in a lab torturing them for five and a half years, and they don't remember how to navigate ordering food at a diner.
0: I have one major problem with that theory. Yeah? It's the CIA we're talking about, right? Yeah. They're dead. Yeah. Failed experiment? They're dead.
2: I... I kind I kind of don't disagree like I I can see where that theory would come from but yeah I don't I, as far as I understand from what little we know about what actually became of the MK Ultra experiments is they didn't let most MK Ultra subjects out of the lab because shit like that would happen to them and it was just like well stick stick him in a stick him in an asylum cell or kill him like it's not most of those most of those victims were rendered "quote unquote" useless to the CIA by the end of the protocols. Yeah, the CIA
0: is not afraid of killing people. Yeah, we we do it all over the world. And by we, I mean they. They do it all over the world, and
1: I bet say you you blown our cover here.
0: <laughs> Listen. We still have post. It's okay.
1: As we know, Rory and I are are our secret uh, CIA agents here to control Jay. Jay was deemed a danger to national security. What with all the talk of what they do once they were global dictator.
0: I mean, it's true, and uh, they incur they, but they got re- the CIA got real upset with me when I decided to marry them.
2: I mean, you were just committing to the bit.
0: That's what I said. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, see, I was good. I only married an agent of the KGB.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely better.
2: That's why she loves potatoes so much.
1: Oh, God. (laughs) It is funny. A psychic once told her in a past life she was a Russian potato farmer and it upset her greatly. (laughs) That's funny. Really?
2: Yeah. Why would that upset her? She loves potatoes. Because
1: she said, I wanted to be something cool, not a stupid potato farmer. Most people were farmers. I know, but she's upset about it.
2: Most people were not Marilyn Monroe.
0: So, are we ready for part three?
1: I am. I, uh, I Should I share my theory about the box, what it is? Oh, sure. So, my my crazy theory. You remember back in Streber? Uh, back with Streber, the alien showed up at his bedside wearing a suit that looked like it was made of cardboard boxes. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Turns out it was the other way around. The box was wearing the alien. You know that? Or it was like, Whitley, wake up. I'd like you to meet my wife, this box.
0: What if... He was, in fact, wearing a box-like suit, but it was the closest equivalent that we would actually think of would have been fur.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
0: So he was, you know, wearing another alien.
1: Yeah. Ah. Symbiotic, either symbiotic relationship or uh, corpse.
0: Yeah, I was thinking more like you know fur suit.
1: It turns out the Greys hunt the boxes for clothing. Yeah. Like, they're like the bite. They're like the roaming herds of of bison of the yeah. cosmos.
2: That's why they were studying that guy's radio equipment. They're like, can we use this to block their signals so they can't track us? No, it's primitive technology. All right, give the adorable human a banana, pat him <laughs> on the head, and get back in the ship.
1: But yeah, that's my that's my theory. Either that, either that or the Gray in the Box were married. They were just introducing themselves to Whitley as a married couple.
0: Oh, I like it. I like it.
2: I love the cardboard suit alien. I'm just picturing aliens on their very dirty, cluttered ship, because I also love that their ship was filthy, like a college dorm room. I'm just picturing graduate students uh, trying to create their aliens, complete their alien zoology uh, program and just being like, we have to build a suit. I don't know what they make it out of. Cardboard? Kind of looks like cardboard.
0: It kind of feels like cardboard sometimes, too, depending on the quality of the suit.
1: Too much starch. Hence, I hate dress clothes.
0: I like my suit now that I have, but it was expansive.
1: Yeah, but you got more drip than me.
0: More drip?
1: Yeah. I'm trying to learn the kid's slang. Okay. Did I do a bad?
0: (laughs) You didn't do it all right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we can go to part three. Part three. Look up. It may be more than lights you see. The largest UFO sighting in Swedish history happened in 1974. Helvi Andersson was at home with her three children. She had tried calling her parents, who lived nearby, but no one answered. She had an odd feeling about all of this. So, she loaded the kids into her car and drove over to her parents' house. While driving, she noticed a circular-shaped light in the sky that seemed to be following her car and it did follow them for several miles before suddenly shrinking to the size of an orange and shooting up to the sky. Confused, she put it out of her mind and focused on the task at hand, driving. When she arrived at her parents' house, she found her father, Hildor, on the porch. When asked about the phones, he said that his telephone had suddenly stopped working and that their television was receiving some interference. She had just begun to tell him about the weird light when they all noticed something across the road where an old quarry lay. A strong light was hovering over the trees alongside a smaller ball of light that was moving in a zigzag pattern. The light seemed to be part of an oval-shaped craft, with the three beams of light pointing down at the ground. The kids began screaming at the sight, and the craft suddenly shrank and shot up into the sky.
1: Oh, shit, startled. (laughs)
0: They all decided that it was time to leave, right then, they were going, and they were going to go to Halevi's brother's house, which was only about five minutes away. When they arrived, her sister-in-law said that she had seen a strange light following their car, and at this point, everyone was freaked out, and rightfully so. Halevi, however, was more curious than fearful and wanted to see the craft again. So, their ever-growing motley crew drove out, and again, the craft appeared trailing their cars. This time, a hat-shaped UFO and a larger, oval-shaped object were following their now caravan of cars. Halevi, curious, stopped her car. The object then settled overhead, and a strong light filled the car. To her shock, her daughter tried to get out of the car. Her daughter said that something had told her to leave the car. And thankfully, Halevi was able to stop her daughter from actually leaving. And then the craft did eventually leave after stopping over a barn. The next day, Halevi tried to report this to the police, but they were not interested. So she called the Swedish National Defense Research Institute, who did in fact take her statement. The police, however, would soon find themselves with egg on their face, because over the next two days, they received 76 reports of UFOs in the area each describing the same object that Halevi and her family had seen. Of these 76 reports, it appears that some people were abducted. One Gostra Hager saw the object flying overhead and then was suddenly thrown to the ground, only to wake up back home with a bleeding head wound. And after two hypnotic sessions, said that he was taken by four transparent men, whom he described as Native Americans, but couldn't see their noses or ears. They gave him a vague mission, some warning about something in the year 2000, and then put an implant in his head. Some witnesses saw a metallic object in a field near where Gostra had his encounter. Other witnesses experienced strange bodily pain, vomiting, and migraines. Medical tests showed that all had higher levels of white blood cells, a side effect of both stress and radioactivity the National Defense Research Institute sprang to action, launching an investigation that started at that quarry. They dressed in full protective clothing, took samples of everything, and then it was deemed that it all was a military exercise. They concluded that an object was indeed seen in the area, but they could not arrive at any logical explanation for it. Less known than the sighting that we just went over was that in January of that same year, there was another sighting only 10 kilometers away from the larger one. Here, four or five people saw cigar-shaped craft appear over a nearby forest. It then dissolved and vanished before their eyes. Of the witnesses in the larger sighting, there might be a more esoteric connection. Gostrahagur was abducted on an ancient hill near two runestones and Halevi reported having an NDE as a child in the same spot where she'd seen the UFO above her parents' house. Back then, the quarry was used as a swimming pool, and one day, Halevi fell in, nearly drowning until she was saved by her father. In the 1970s, the Carlson family saw a bright red object flying above them. The father, Eric, had noticed it when he saw several cars stopped on a nearby road with their lights off. The object moved erratically, darting above and around the trees in ways that an airplane absolutely could not. They watched it for two hours before finally going to bed, during which it came within 200 meters of them and had beams of light coming out of the sphere that were yellow and white. One of the other witnesses, Ellen Aronson, visited the homestead of one Rickard Johansson, who had not seen the object as he was in bed. Rickard's homestead was close to where the thing was flying. Here, they found three triangular-shaped depressions in the earth at the edge of his garden. Word soon spread, and soon over 1,000 people came to visit and hopelessly corrupted any chance of preserving any evidence that there may have been.
1: Can you imagine something happening and 1,000 people showing up in your yard?
0: Not here. Like,
1: I don't even know what I do. Like, what the fuck do you do? Serve them lemonade? Like,
0: tell him to fuck it, go away.
1: He Buffy, liked it. He liked I the know, attention. He did.
2: Buffy would be so upset. She'd be so overwhelmed. Just, she'd just be barking. At the, yeah, she'd be at the window barking or whining. She'd be doing that thing where she would be looking between the window and us, just going.
0: Eh. Yeah, I'm
1: pretty sure my dog Ted would uh would have an aneurysm. I
0: mean, yeah, he'd lose his little puppy mind.
2: I think he would. I think he would shatter the front window of your house with his head and go tearing out into the crowd to bark at all of these people until they got the fuck away from his house.
1: Yeah, that sound- I mean, either that or it- not the head. He just shatters it with the raw volume of his bark.
2: Now I'm free! Just goes levitating out of it. Just, <laughs> just a vengeance potato on a mission.
1: <laughs> a- I like that. A vengeance potato.
0: Yeah. Quote, however, one thing was clear. The prints that were visible pointed at them being circular in shape, 40 centimeters in diameter, and roughly 4 centimeters deep. According to investigators, the prints were charred and not burned. Surrounded by four trees, the object was calculated to be at most 8.8 meters in diameter, or else the trees would have been damaged by the descent. The police and media declared the whole thing was a hoax and laid the blame on two teenagers from Magra, a town 20 kilometers away, who were playing with a small hot air balloon that they'd made. Though both teens denied any involvement, and at least one had a rock-solid alibi. The story was eventually picked up by a gentleman's magazine, Lectier, who likely exacerbated the whole affair as they had a reputation for entertainment over fact and creating news. Fred calls this era of Swedish history the Era of Mysterious Prints. Throughout the 1970s, there was multiple sightings of odd patterns or markings in the ground and markings in the ground and snow, all of which, like most stories of these kind, are left unanswered and debated. Quote, will we ever find out what's behind these incidents? Probably not, and we're left with stories and legends written down by dreamers and believers. I'm not saying that these marks have a natural, rational explanation. Oh no, don't misunderstand me. They might have, but maybe something really did land or crawl up from the depths of the Swedish soil and leave a final imprint before heading back into the unknown realms of our reality. Another sighting took place in December of 1977 outside the village of Kawisavra. Bruno Nigard saw two figures on what he thought was a kick sled, but was in fact something like a large circular flat box. It had two dark figures on the sides who were picking stuff up off the ground, though he couldn't see what. When they saw him, they leapt into their box, which suddenly shot straight up into the sky. It then turned, flew off to the left, and vanished. During its flight, he could see the object was spinning, while the occupants in the center remained stationary. What our author finds interesting here is the area that these sightings were in. That area of Sweden is filled with magnetite and iron ore, two minerals that some researchers have claimed are connected to UFO sightings. But why? Do the others need these minerals? Or is the presence of these minerals in the Earth what helps people tune in to whatever frequency of reality these beings live on? According to Project Doorway's paper, Positive Magnetic Anomalies and Electron Diffusion Regions in Association with UAT, They concluded that an incredibly high number of UFO sightings occur in areas with strong magnetic fields. To compare, Fred used the EMAG-2 filter on Google Earth to check for himself. He found that only half of his sightings happened in high magnetic areas. The paper also suggested higher rates of suicide and criminality in areas of low magnetism. The northern part of Sweden, however, is highly magnetic and it was this same area where most of the ghost rocket sightings of the 1940s occurred. In fact, three of these phantom rockets were seen crashing into lakes in the north, though no wreckage was ever found. And here he brings up John Keel's theory on magnetic hotspots attracting or provoking the phenomenon. He questions if Keel was correct in this idea, or if he was simply taken with an idea that he couldn't get out of his head. Quote, Our brain creates an illusion that we live in a certain consensus reality, and we often think that reality is objective. How can that be so? We're billions of humans, all unique individuals who all see things differently. Of course, there's a lot of shared reality, information, and experiences that we feel attracted to and are necessary to even be able to move around in this world. In the end, Each one of us sees what's around us and inside us through an infinite amount of variance. Like the UFO phenomena has changed shape over the years, so even the culture around it. From the cheesy flying saucers of the 50s and 60s to the visually colder, slicker triangular black shapes and then the downright boring tic-tacs of modern times. When we see something that we've never seen before, the brain tries to fit it inside the realm of known knowledge. And that is going to bring us to our third and final discussion question of this episode. So, throughout this episode, we have talked about many different sightings and many different kinds of people having them, from hoaxers to radio techs, ignoring that, ignoring people who end up having a reputation for faking things. So... How much of someone's personality and past should be taken into consideration when examining their story? So, if someone is considered by their neighbors to be practical and not a gossip, should their story then hold more weight than someone who is a town gossip or known for flights of, you know, fancy or whatever? I okay. And that's like I said, ignoring known hoaxers.
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm a little torn on this for a couple reasons. I mean, One, the thing is, and this is a sad truth I've learned throughout my life, is that sometimes people lie and they don't, and very often they don't actually have a good reason for it. Uh, They lied because they were in a conversation and they felt awkward and felt like they wanted to contribute something. Mm -hmm. They lied because somebody else told a story that made them feel inferior and they wanted to one-up them, so they made up something. Or they lie because they're trying to impress somebody they're trying to go on a date with. Like, these things do happen, everyone over the course of your life, no matter how good you are, you will tell a lie or two over the course of your life. It just, and you might not even realize you're doing it till after the fact that you sit back and wonder, why the hell did I just tell that person that? Yeah. And so, yeah, and yes, so your, your assessments of your character are important to establish veracity. But the other side of that is that I know people in my life who have uh, decided that I am a hateful, manipulative person.
0: Which is just fucking wild.
1: And I have, as far as I was aware, I hadn't done anything to deserve that reputation. But let's say, let's say I'm in a situation like that where my neighbor just fucking hates me and I see a UFO. They say, well, that person's a liar and a manipulator. You have to take into consideration that the person who's telling you the person's lying might be lying. True. And so because of how, how, because of this, and I, I understand this is kind of one of the core frustrations with the UFO community in that. This phenomenon seems to resist leaving physical evidence, but at the, and at the same time, the evidence it does leave is in this murky area of truth or fiction. What you know, basically, personal opinion, per, not personal opinion, personal experience. And so, uh, I really think when it comes to these topics, yes, you should consider that. Of course, you should, but at the same time. Even if somebody was a liar, let's say no one was lying about them, they were a liar manipulator, there's nothing saying that person can't also have a UFO experience. And so I think the, the more pragmatic or I guess more functional way of approaching this, those situations is to say, okay, I don't know what who is telling the truth here. I will look for physical traces, but assuming I don't find any of those, the best I can do is take this story and compare it against other stories of its kind and look for common threads. Because if you have elements that say show up in eighty-five percent of cases, that's a strong indication to me that yes, even if some of those were lied or made up or were influenced by those pre-existing stories, that there might be a there, there, there might be some... odds
0: are that there's truth here.
1: Yeah. Whereas if uh you know somebody tells me you know a, a good example, which again may have happened, may not. If I hear a thousand UFO stories and only in one is a man bullied by a sentient flower. That's the one I might raise an eyebrow to, because you know that is it's an outlier, and those and you're you know we're pattern recognition engines. We're I'm lo- so you're looking for the things that that stick out that don't quite fit.
0: I like that you used. You're essentially using a data analytical approach to this.
1: Yeah, well, I mean that's my job infect infecting me. Yeah, oh. no, it's
0: it's good. It's actually a really smart. It's a really it's an, It's a way to be able to take a step back when you're analyzing the phenomena as a whole mm-hmm. but when the 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 downside or the 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 part that I think will end up being a challenge is when looking at something at an individual basis, you can't take that yeah. step back
1: i and I think really what it comes down to for me is regardless of if the story someone's telling me is true or not at the end of the day i I just try to keep in mind that a because it's a single story. There's only so much I can glean from it. There's only so much it's going to inform. I need aggregate, and I need bulk data. But beyond that, it's, even if the person's lying, they care enough to make up this story, it doesn't hurt me to listen to it. It doesn't hurt me to tell them, to ask them follow-up questions, to act like it could be real, because it might be. It's, it doesn't, I don't like the, I don't really, I really hate the uh, knee-jerk reaction a lot of people have, to say that wasn't real because mm-hmm. I don't know I, I don't know if it was real or not but I know you felt it was real enough to tell me it or you felt you you should lie to me and if if it's the first case well then I'm glad to be an ear someone can an ear for someone who's had an experience they can't talk about and if it's the other well then that's a reflection on their character not mine right I me being uh accepting and being a good a good person who will listen to them that That is the best I can do to display who I am. Them lying to me is on
0: them. Yeah, I agree.
2: Uh, I I personally do think we should take people's reputations into account when evaluating these stories simply because we don't have any other way of necessarily assessing if they can be treated as a reliable source or not. And it is... It's important to feel like your sources are somewhat reliable. If if we're going to get anywhere studying this, it's I feel like it is important to take any steps possible to minimize wild goose chases or things that are ultimately the setup for someone's alien-themed MLM from taking up too much space in the conversation. And yes there are there are incidences where someone is labeled as a liar uh by is is labeled as a liar unfairly but if you have a community of only about 400 people and there's one guy in it insisting that he saw sasquatches in a flying saucer taking people's cows and 350 other people in that 400 pe- uh, person community are like do not listen to Barry, he's a fucking liar, I, I'm going to tend to side with those people, especially if, you know, their reputation for being a liar comes from them attempting to tell lies about this particular thing before.
0: But that's those are the ones that I said to ignore.
2: Okay. Um. Yeah, I know. Because, I like, was...
0: known hoaxers and things like that, obviously... Yeah. If if that information comes to light, you have to take that into consideration. I'm saying Joe Schmo me, me right? There are people who would t- like to to next point there are people that would that would tell you I'm I'm a pathological liar. But if somebody asked you, you wouldn't say that about me. Yeah. Um but you know if you came to the conclusion one way or the other that I was a gossip or that i was that that I'm a very you know honest person, should one or the other be held more uh i be given more weight in this scenario and
2: and i that's complicated because there d- d- be that's that's complicated and it depends on like who's saying that they're a liar versus who's saying that they can be treated as trustworthy is there an overwhelming consensus on one side versus the other um is the person and again I am in my mind excluding known hoaxers like people who have been caught with fake Bigfoot feet in their garage and things like that of I don't want to end up in a mind frame of believe everyone. I I don't want to do that. That doesn't feel productive ultimately. And yes, there are going to be incidences where someone is going to be labeled as a liar unfairly for whatever reason. But again, I don't, I don't want to exist in a mind frame of believe everybody. And I feel like, I feel like sometimes if you're if if the overwhelming majority of your community has has come to the conclusion that things you say cannot be taken seriously because you are again not a known hoaxer but you're you're known to tell lies, you're known to exaggerate, you're known to get things confused because you're reactive and sensitive and prone to paranoia I feel like that should be taken into consideration when you start telling truly fantastical
1: stories I mean true yeah I I I think for me I guess the the differences for me with the scenarios you're you're depicting there I guess I don't know. I think for me, I would feel differently if it was somebody who I know has lied to me. It's not other people telling me they've lied. Like, uh, I'm not going to name. We, have a mutual, we had a mutual ex-friend who was prolific in their lies. And yeah, I wouldn't believe a crazy story they told me. And, but that's entirely, I guess, I guess for me, I, I look at it from much more personal. How is this person... Treated the topic, uh, treated the truth in my sight when I'm around or to people I personally know. Not, I go to a town where I saw, where I heard UFO sightings were and I interviewed the neighbors. Now that's it, do, I do agree, Jay. There, that is, should be an indicator if 90% of the town says that guy's full of shit. I, I, I guess I just struggle with the, it doesn't cost me anything to at least act like I believe them when I'm talking to them. Yeah, so I, I guess that's the thing. It's like I, I come back to is you don't have to believe them, but you do have to treat people with respect in case it's true.
2: Yeah. And I'm not saying to mock them and throw eggs at them. I'm I'm yeah. I'm saying that. And again, if if we're operating from the standpoint of an investigator, you you don't have personal experience for mo- with most of these people. And th- this is one of those situations where it's like we have to go with the information that we have and yes, there's probably not ever going to be an overwhelming consensus. Most communities just don't operate in a way where we can have overwhelming consensus about any of our neighbors and their ability to tell the truth. But yeah, if, if, if you're in like a, a small community or some sort of tightly knit community and all the people who have had routine personal contact with this individual tell you in a way that does not seem overtly biased like if if you're in a town that's majority white people and there's like one prominent black member of the community and everyone says don't listen to that guy he's full of shit I'm gonna take the racial dynamics into consideration there and but yeah if 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 say like you're You're trying to interview a bunch of people that were at the same gaming convention that may have seen something paranormal, and you're talking to the people at Artist Alley, and 80% of the artists are like, listen, uh," it's like, listen, uh, Jimmy C., don't listen to anything Jimmy C says. He makes shit up all the time. He thinks up funny stories when he's drunk and then repeats them and then quite can't can't quite remember if that actually happened or if he was drunk. I feel like we need to take that into consideration that this person has in their particular community a reputation as being an unreliable narrator. Yeah, I think that's fair. So
0: I, I don't disagree with it when you're saying like the overwhelming majority of you know the people around them say that they're untrustworthy or that they're a liar that that needs to be taken into consideration that i agree i i agree obviously you have you have to take that into consideration and like you both said it's a, it's it's a complicated question but ultimately uh i there there's one thing that you said jay that i i just don't like the wording and it's saying that we have to look at something as, or look, we have to make sure that something is a reliable source. By whose standards? Because reliable source and the concept of reliable source, as everybody in this community talks about it, is laid out by the government, is laid out by what they define as a reliable source. So if you are a well spoken, educated, uh, you know, uh, hard working, capitalist loving, person you are a reliable source and i disagree with that because they are going to they're like obviously i'm being i'm being sarcastic with it but i don't think that just because somebody works at an office like me makes them more reliable than somebody that works at mcdonald's but almost every ufo investigator would and i disagree with that at a fundamental level um i the fact that somebody is less off or less educated or, you know, less well-spoken or a gossip versus, you know, a, a, you know, more rational down to earth person shouldn't matter to me because that, because otherwise you're punishing somebody uh, essentially, whether or not they had an experience, you're punishing them for being an imagined, for being an imaginative person, for being somebody who likes to chat and see and observe their neighbors. And yeah, some people got a big mouth. But you're effectively taking, uh, you're, you're throwing aspects of their, you know, what they might be witnessing out the window just because, but just because they are the way that they are doesn't make them less reliable or a less reputable source. Um, in in my in my opinion, now I understand like I understand the 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 necessity from a scientific perspective to have these measures and everything. But honestly, that aside, I think it, that you know that's a completely separate conversation because I think we need to stop approaching this from a scientific method because it's like from a fully 100% materialistic scientific method because it's never gonna work.
1: I mean, if what if what the leaks we've heard from the supposed UAP UAP insiders is correct, then yeah, they've they've already known that for years. That's why they've involved remote viewing. Why the CIA had a remote viewing team, and they've started looking at psychical stuff.
0: Yeah. Uh well, yeah, I actually have a question about stuff like this.
1: Next, qu- next episode. Yeah,
0: it's the last question. I'm I'm compiling all of this. Everything that we've learned and everything that we're going to be talking about and saying, how how can we talk look, like with all of this in mind, how can we approach the modern day UFO uh, like disclosure, blah, 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 movement yeah, I, and stuff like that?
1: So I guess uh as a final thought, the only other two things I, I would want to know, and this is more just adding to what Jay said. Another thing I'd want to keep an eye on is – so a lot like what was being said there, like how are, is this person viewed within their culture, not just in terms of what their story is but on a broader scale. And I, one thing that, that's occurred to me is I have encountered recently stories uh, where people were discredited because they were mentally ill, mm-hmm. that even though if that mental illness was depression. Yeah, you know, was things that don't lead to uh, grand hallucinations, right? Yeah. Because and,
0: people and- look for reasons to discredit everybody, regardless of anything else. And I think that that's part of what we need to step away from, because if we stopped doing that, if we stopped putting these lab- like these identifying labels and and saying that you you know uh well you know it's one way or the other it's going to help kill the stigma around it and more people who might be more reputable are going to start coming forward and talking about it because 99 probably 99% or more of the people who have legit real experiences will never tell anybody because they're afraid of their life getting ruined
1: yeah i mean i'm i'm not going to lie even though i I didn't foresee any real way that I, it would have a major impact on me. I'm not a public person. Even doing this show, I had a moment of hesitation for that very
0: reason. I changed my name. Yeah. Rory is not my real name, and I did it out of fear because of the topics that we talk about and the fact that I work inside such a an industry that is notorious for firing people who shame the company.
1: Yeah. Um. I will also say one other thing is... uh. One, and this really is kind of goes beyond the question, but just a a, a trend that I know we've hit upon within paranormal spheres that is frustrating, is I think another thing to consider is that there are an awful lot of people where person A tells a story, investigators go, and out of the town they find three people who say person A is a liar. It doesn't matter how big the town is. The fact that anyone was willing to say they're a liar, a lot of people will say then that is the correct answer. Because it, it, where there's a lot of people who don't who want the, these stories to not be real. And I feel like that's also something we have to consider, uh, and especially because it, let's say or we also have to consider situations of there was a mass sighting. Right. Say 20 people saw this. Five people say it was nothing. Those people are full of it. I'm more inclined to believe those five people don't want to deal with what they saw. Yeah. But that said, that could also be me. Wanting this to be real, yeah yeah you, know, we-
0: you do, and you know to uh like you know we do like you guys were both saying, we have to take all of these things into consideration that's what makes it so unbelievably complicated and so unbelievably difficult to have any kind of uh like have any kind of movement on this at from a cultural level because there's so much that's happening, and ultimately to your point, we have to take our own bias into consideration too and we we have a lot of it. Yeah, absolutely, we do. Which is why, like, and I agree, Jay. I don't want to be a person who just default, uh, 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 believes everybody. But at the end of the day, I'm going to, I'm going to start the conversation with an open mind, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to likely believe them throughout the conversation. Believe that what they're telling me is true, unless I'm proven unless I'm proven with an overwhelming shadow shadow of doubt or, you know, beyond a a shadow of a doubt that it's not, right? Because ultimately they, like, like Nick said, they are sharing with me or with us or with this book or whatever, they're sharing this likely very hard to tell story and I don't want to diminish the... The, how hard that part is just sharing the story by outright denying it from the get. Like, will I fail at that? Yes. Like, I I do constantly. We all, you know, we all do. But that's like that's my goal is to attempt to be as open minded with these as possible because ultimately, at the end of the day, we have no idea. Yeah.
1: I mean, just earlier we were throwing shade at Stephen Lechance because we all do not believe his story.
0: Mind you, we have, have... We have reason. We have reason to. You know, we read the book and have done other, you know, side research about it, so...
1: Yeah, like, Mr. Winter is not real.
2: And that's kind of what I'm trying to say, is you don't need to just... One person says that the witness is a liar. You don't need to throw everything out, but it, it can be a factor if multiple people that you talk to about this witness... Say that they're that that they're an unreliable narrator, and that they have a tendency to, to say things that are not necessarily true. Like it doesn't have to be the be all, end all, final piece of evidence. I'm I'm just saying I feel comfortable factoring that in.
0: No, and you should. Like all of these things have to be taken into consideration, for sure. Um, uh, it, it's I. I don't I don't disagree with I don't disagree with your like with your approach. The only reason why I went on the the the, the tirade about uh the idea of like you know uh was it? uh reputable or anything reliable like that source. Reli- reliable source is just because of how mostly the UFO community specifically treats that. Like that word and that idea of reputable like uh reliable source. And that's fair. But that was all I've got for this.
1: Yeah, I think that's it. That's it for me as well.
0: Anything else on this one? Nope. Uh, Because the About the Author will be next week.
1: Yeah, uh, good book. Hope everyone's been enjoying it.
0: Oh, we forgot to mention what book at the top. We forgot to mention what book uh, we're going to be reading this month for next month's episode.
2: Serpents of the Sky, Dragons of the Earth by F.W. Holiday.
0: Which is a
1: uh, cryptozoological classic. F.W. Holiday is uh, one of the golden oldies who is long dead. So don't anticipate that we're going to talk to him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Let's we can start this announcement now. Uh, We are. So we've got the obviously the two part episode on Northern Lights. We've got uh, a midnight chat with the author, Fred Anderson. And then what are we doing for the last event, uh, Nick?
1: So we're going to be doing another live stream, uh, the second in what is going to be a monthly live stream series. Uh, And as per some of the feedback we got on the November stream, we are going to do an Estes Method session and attempt to summon up Santa Claus. Yes, Santa! I I am legitimately working in my mind on preparing a ritual to summon Christmas cheer.
0: And it helps that you are Nick i yeah, I going to I, be summoning Saint Nick.
1: I am, I am a large, somewhat jolly bearded man, red in the face, named Nick, born three days after Christmas. If anyone can do this, it's me.
0: I, do, I agree. I think, I, I,
1: think yeah, I. think. we can do it. I was, I, was, I was put on this earth to be a vessel for the claws. Yeah.
2: I, I would comfortably label you as jolly.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah, I would too. Absolutely. Oh, that's
1: good. I was worried that all my uh, rage-filled rants that you heard coming out of me during COVID would have spoiled that illusion.
0: Nah, nah. You can be. You can have rage and still be jolly. Yeah. I,
2: I. I think. I think in the inside-out world, your default emotion is definitely joy, and mine is definitely
1: disgust.
0: And mine is sad. And occasionally,
1: the rage just gets the better of me, which is why Mrs. Claus took the elves with her to Miami.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, let's go into housekeeping.
1: Housekeeping
2: housekeeping.
0: So if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe on whatever podcasting platform it is that you are listening to us on. And if it is Spotify or Apple, please leave us a review of five stars preferred, but I'm told it's not required. Uh, otherwise, you can reach out to us if you have any questions, concerns, comments, and or book suggestions, anything like that, at gmail.com. Or on Twitter, at NoctivigantPod. And I am at MixRoryWicks. I am at BearishTerror.
2: I am at MidwestUndead.
0: And then we have a plethora of other social media apps. We have an Instagram, Noctivigant underscore podcast. Uh, We have a Reddit account, Noctivigant Podcast.
2: And we have a Tumblr account, Noctivigant Podcast.
0: Oh, and you can join our Discord channel, which I will have a link to in the uh, episode description. But I think that's it so i guess i'll lead us out of here
1: yeah lead us out of here uh cut to make sure you tune in next week for part two of northern lights high strangeness in sweden
0: all right well good night ghosties good night ghoulies good night moth people stay safe out there on those midnight roads
1: don't get lost
0: you know just follow the boxes they know what they're
1: doing you know that's close enough to side posts i would follow the boxes i want to pet them i want to feel the fur of boxes
2: i trust the boxes
1: yeah, I, I weirdly, too, trust the boxes. I don't, I don't, I, I, you know, looking back, why am I not more suspicious about the boxes? But I don't know. They just, they're friend-shaped.
2: Tiny box, too.
0: I don't know what these fools are thinking. I don't trust these boxes.